the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kathleen Davis. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to let you know of where you can get more of me and more exclusive work-life content. I've been doing a lot over on LinkedIn, posting every Sunday what I'm calling the Sunday Scaries series of vital work-life tips to get you ready for the week. And once a month, I'm doing a LinkedIn audio event, which you sometimes hear in the feed here. So you can follow me over at LinkedIn. I'm Kathleen E. Davis or follow Fast Company at LinkedIn for even more. While AI and other forms of automation have been changing work over the last few decades, the last 11 months have seen the pace of change accelerated at a dizzying speed. Just under a year since OpenAI released ChatGPT and the use of and fears about AI have become ubiquitous. According to the site, there's an AI for that. There are currently over 8,800 AI tools that can perform over 2,000 tasks that are part of nearly 5,000 jobs. Everything from street sweepers, who the site claims can have 90% of their tasks automated, to CEOs, who can have 91% of their tasks completed by AI. Aside from the impact on individual jobs, AI has skyrocketed in ways no other industry has this year. Between 2018 and 2022, AI startups received just 12% of funding. But this year so far, funding for AI-related startups is in at over $23 billion. So what is a street sweeper, CEO, or any other human being with a job to do in the face of the fast-paced AI revolution? In March, I talked to Dr. Tomas Chamaro Premizik about what uniquely human skills can't be replaced by machines and how we can double down on those skills. Our differentiating angle will be to develop and cultivate our emotional intelligence, our social skills and our ability to feel what others feel and connect with them on a humane degree. Still, if such a large percentage of over 5,000 jobs and counting can be automated, we're going to have to learn how to use technology that, if it hasn't already, will become part of our daily work lives. What's more, as some jobs will eventually be eliminated altogether, many of us will have to learn new AI management roles. I asked Anish Raman, Vice President and the Head of Opportunity Project at LinkedIn, how AI is impacting the job market. The first thing I want to ask you is kind of the big, broad question of of how AI has impacted job postings on LinkedIn in this past year and how much of that increase has there been in jobs mentioning AI skills or working with AI? Yeah. uh, Well, first, uh, thank you for having me on. Thank you for uh, engaging on this topic of AI and work. It is going to usher in a new world of work. It's going to hit different functions in different sectors in different ways over different timeframes. So each of us individually are going to feel this shift different. And you're already seeing the beginnings of definition around the new digital skills or AI-related skills and the new durable skills, the new hard skills or people skills, because those are the things that we uniquely as people can do, the soft skills. But lastly, I think if we get this right, if we have the right intent in how we build AI, if we have the right playbooks that we build around this moment of change, I do think we're heading to a world of work that is more human not less. A world of work where people skills become more core to individual career growth and where people-to-people collaboration become more core to company growth. So that's where I think we're going at a really high level. 
In terms of your question, uh, it just validates that this is a big deal in the early days. In terms of job postings, it's quite clear that we are entering this new world of work. We have seen uh, since November 2022 a 21x increase in the share of global job postings mentioning GPT in some form or fashion. More recently, we've seen the demand for AI engineers grow by over 100% in the past three months. And that all sounds like really big in terms of change, but it is truly just the beginning. As fast as AI roles are growing, they still account for less than 1% of talent on LinkedIn. So that's one look at the job description side. And outside of that, in terms of our members, we've got about a 950 million members on LinkedIn. And everyone on their profile is adding skills or can add skills based on the jobs they did, what skills they used. And so we're starting to see how AI-related skills are coming into the member profiles. We've seen, I think, a 75% increase each month since the start of the year in members adding terms like GAI, ChatGPT, prompt engineering to their profiles, and a 65% uptick in time spent on learning courses around AI. So big deal. Get ready for it with a skills-first mindset and get learning in terms of the AI tools that we're all going to use across all our jobs and the soft skills. You know, One of the most important data points I've seen out of our data, 70% of US execs we surveyed agree that soft skills are right now more important than AI skills. There will be certain roles that are all about AI. I know we'll talk about that. But just generally, I think CEOs and the C-suite and companies are realizing soft skills are going to become critical. Yeah, we did dedicate a whole episode to kind of those skills that AI can't replace, those very human skills that you've mentioned several times. That does make me wonder, as much as they are touting their AI skills now, will they start touting their so-called soft skills, their people skills to differentiate themselves in that way, I wonder? I think they will. I think we're in early days. If you think about the last few decades and what technology did to work, it really brought hard technical skills to the center. And so in terms of workforce development across the world, we got really good at credentialing that, not just in terms of a computer science degree, but all the coding boot camps that popped up everywhere. We, and when I say we, I mean us at a societal level, at a species level, we are going to have to get good at credentialing these soft skills. Uh, We have playbooks we can build from, but this is going to be new. But one thing I think is true, and I did a post on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, is that the study of philosophy, I think, is going to become a new it skill. Because when you talk about soft skills, yes, there's the just how do you collaborate? How do you communicate? Show me what you mean, where you did it. But as I've been spending a lot of time reading philosophy to be kind of a economic anthropologist and situate where we are now and where we've been as humans, you realize that with philosophy, you have a lot of skills around resilience, around creativity, around lifelong learning, social cohesion, and importantly, ethics. And so a lot of the conversations we're seeing on LinkedIn, we do have this data point. We've seen conversations about responsible AI increase nearly 7x from April 2022 to April 2023, with obviously massive spikes coinciding with the launch of GPT in November. And so I think the probably most deliberate focus right now on these soft skills from the employer side is around ethics. But I think everyone would be smart to realize that that's part of a broader shift we're going to see play out. Yeah, that's that's such an important point because that really is kind of the first thing, at least for me and hopefully for a lot of people that comes to mind when you talk about using AI in the workplace is the can of worms that it opens up for ethics in so many different ways. And you're right that that's such a valuable being able to have that philosophy, ethics, morality skill set and, and apply it to AI. Yes, some of your tasks can be automated, but a lot, I think, is how are we going to be able to work with AI, not what is AI going to do? 
take our jobs away. So on a practical level, how is AI changing the hiring process itself from screening applicants to maybe the way that job seekers will apply? Well, let me start with what you said just there about fear. I think there is a lot of fear out there, but I can't stress this enough. I think the smart professionals are not the ones right now hunkering down with that fear, not the ones that think AI is going to happen to them or change is going to happen to them but are starting to adapt and see the opportunities to do their work or to access opportunity more easily and more effectively. And I would argue over the long term, more equitably in terms of the impact that we'll see on the world of work and access to economic opportunity. And that's really true with talent professionals. We surveyed and do regularly HR professionals. The latest one, 80% of them believe that AI will be a tool to help them with their work over the next five years. We know that HR professionals see AI, uh, I think the ones that are leaning into it, as a tool to help them save time on mundane tasks, to focus importantly on the most human aspects of their work, listening to candidates, uh, understanding their desire, their career goals, helping them find that next great fit. Increasingly, we're seeing, and I think this will be because of AI a lot of this momentum, a blurring of the lines between talent acquisition and learning and development, and really thinking about employees who are coming in from the start across their career. And what are their goals to upskill? And especially with Gen Z, which is an equal force, I think, of change to AI in terms of expectations of work and the desire for mobility and and a lot of optionality in a career, that's changing uh, how talent professionals need to engage with candidates. And that means they need that freed up time from AI to focus more on the individual person-to-person work that is required. We've tried to help. We've rolled out new AI-assisted messaging in May. We've already seen, I think, about three-fourths of recruiters in our early tests, say it saves them time. And building on that, we've got a whole bunch of new recruiter tools that are out there as a tool. And I think that's the key. Find the ways, and this is true for everyone in every role where AI can support your work. I spend a lot of my time writing in my job. I spend increasing amounts of time in the early stages of writing, working with ChatGPT to help refine a logic flow, to help think about pithy lines. There's ways for all of us to be engaging with AI as a tool. And it's not just the hirers, the job seekers. If I'm applying to a job, what does this company want me to say? What does this hiring manager want me to say? What does the recruiter want me to say to get in the door? Do I even know how to properly package my experience and my skills in a way that meets them where they're at in terms of what they're looking for? And for all of human history, that exercise has really blocked out a lot of people from accessing opportunities simply because they didn't know what the right thing to say was. They didn't lack the skills. They didn't lack the ambition. They didn't lack the know-how. They just lacked the sort of answer key in terms of how do I engage with you? And I think that's going to be one of the most profound impacts of AI is helping everyone meet each other where they're at. Now, I think to go back to, again, something you said about how we build AI Intent is so critical right now. How do we make sure we don't exacerbate biases with AI? How do we make sure we don't further entrench barriers that exist for people when it comes to accessing economic opportunity? Again, like where AI takes us isn't up to AI, it's up to us. And us right now as individuals and how we shape it. And left unattended, it could take bad and make it worse. But with the right intent, it could emerge a new world of work that's more equal and dynamic. If we can do that here, I do think we can make this the moment. We can be alive at a time when more people in more places than ever before accessed economic opportunity. 
I'm so glad that you brought that up because as you first started talking about using AI as a talent acquisition tool, my mind initially went to, well, AI can only pull from the information that's there. The information that's there is biased. You know, I've talked to other leaders in the hiring space and it's like AI does have the potential to make the biases that have already existed even worse and just kind of keep repeating those. Do you have any advice or is there any kind of way that hiring managers can make sure that they're not using AI trained unbiased and actually open up their talent pool? The easiest, earliest thing people can do as they're building these new playbooks really is build a skills first mindset because the labor market is one of the most opaque markets around. It's all guesswork. Is someone who's being hired overqualified or underqualified, overpaid or underpaid? You don't know is the person going into that job. And guess what? Your employer doesn't know either now because talent professionals have just never had an objective data set. And absent that objective data set, we know that the pedigree signals win, that where you went to school matters a ton, who you know matters a ton. Your ability to have the confidence that you know what you need to know, even if you don't, matters a ton. You know, one of the early gender signals we've seen with skills on the platform is that women are applying to jobs at a higher rate if it's described as a skills match than just if they see the job qualifications. And that isn't because women are less ambitious or less invested in those jobs. The research has shown women think they need to have every one of the qualifications listed, whereas men don't. So they don't apply to jobs that they don't have every qualification. But when it's described as a skills match, oh, okay, I can do this. And so that's just one example, I think, of how bringing a skills first mindset is just good practice all around. But it'll also set you up to really make sure AI is opening up opportunity because it starts forcing us internally as people who are writing job descriptions to not copy and paste the job descriptions we've been using for years that can have language that's distancing, that can have all sorts of signals that are keeping the applicants that you want to expand out to from applying. But it's also the beginnings of building that objective data set. It's the beginnings of really saying, what does this job do? What are the key tasks? What are the skills that I need to find to do those tasks? And what are the different ways I could look to credential those skills? Not just degree and where someone works, but other ways that I can see that skill play out. One of the things I've been doing in a lot of mentorship conversations with students I work with from historically marginalized groups is you have a degree in handling hard well. Handling hard well and knowing how to learn repeatedly are about to be two of the biggest things I think every employer for every job is going to look for. There isn't a like set way to go get a bootcamp certificate in that, but there's life experience that people can start to articulate that brings that to the table that is going to be core to how we hire for all these jobs. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that point you make, you know, about women not applying for jobs unless they meet 100% of the criteria where I think the statistic, you know, men apply for jobs and they meet you know, whatever lo- lower percent of it. But but really matching it skills wise and doing a skills first, we've covered in past episodes too about fair chance hiring, about removing degree requirements. It yes. just all of that seems to be moving us in the right direction. And you're exactly right, like training AI on the right things <laughs> rather than the wrong things. Yeah. And, you know, going back to this, I'd be interested to hear if you've seen any kind of more AI-centric, not necessarily just roles utilizing AI, but roles that are built around AI popping up like prompt engineering and AI ethics policy creation. What kind of other AI-centric roles are you seeing pop up? It's early. And so that's exciting for people who are probably early in their career to think about all the opportunity that's about to unfold. 
In terms of how to start now, there are roles that are emerging like head of AI that are increasing. In just the past five years, we've seen the number of companies that have a head of AI position nearly triple. That's a role that didn't exist before. By the way, it did exist before November in ChatGPT. AI isn't just suddenly here, but it has gone mainstream as those who've been around it for years or decades will say and concede. I think beyond that, what's really interesting to me, and I know our CEO is thinking about it as he was talking to the talent professionals too, is this idea around AI implementation. And this is going to be a new role as much as a new function, I think, at companies. And what I mean by that is the new, more integrated, more complex work that is going to have to happen to tie talent plans and tech plans together. The chief technology officer and the chief people officer are going to have to plan together in a way we've never seen before. What tool do we want to bring in? That tool, is that tool ready? Where does it fit? AI tools are expensive. How do we think about that cost and when it'll make sense to scale it? What does that mean for the workers in that arena where we're bringing in that tool? It's not a given that that means less workers, by the way. We're already seeing within LinkedIn, we have an example with customer service teams outside of LinkedIn. We've got examples from the healthcare sector, the retail sector, where AI tools are coming in. The teams that are operating uh, where the AI tools are coming in are getting upskilled to handle more complex tasks. And so the teams are actually growing, not shrinking as AI comes in because it's up-leveling the work. With that, that's why you've got that learning and development key piece. How are you upskilling workers so they can mature into then the more complex work that AI frees up? These are really complicated questions. Lots of opportunity to get this wrong, to either be late to bringing these tools in while your competitor gets there or to do it in an incorrect way that stalls out its impact and has really bad impacts on your workforce. So that I think is a really interesting arena that I'm watching, which is where does that work start to get assigned within org charts? Because I think that's going to be some of the most critical decision-making companies are going to have to make. And I think, by the way, for talent professionals, that's about to be a battle for talent unlike any we've seen, because those are going to be real-time expertise And the people that get them and gain them and build them are going to be some of the most hotly contested talent as companies try to figure out this like bigger implementation. But I will say, I think mostly about AI, not as what specific roles and functions and teams is it going to shape, but really this impact it's going to have for all of us in terms of the digital skills and the people skills. Just the example I give to everyone right now is prompting. I mean, everywhere I go now, I ask everyone to raise their hand if they've asked AI any sort of question. What have you asked GPT about work, but it even travel, all sorts of stuff. And every hand is going up now in every room. That's all of us getting a degree in prompting because we're all starting to learn how to engage with this new technology. And I will say my prompting, even as it relates to my writing asks, have matured dramatically from last year to this year. Whereas last year, I just asked a question. Now I have a whole sequence of questions I ask. And I ask for questions back to make sure that AI's got what it needs, ask it to give feedback on what it's done. And I think people are excited about that, even though we started with a place, I think, correctly of what is this and the anxiety around it. We've seen 80% or so of our members, when we look at their skills and their roles, they're in a position to use AI to automate at least a quarter of that repetitive stuff that we often like least in our day. And so I think that's an exciting thing to think about what we would all do if we could do more of what we uniquely can do as humans and we uniquely like to do in our day-to-day, but it's going to impact us all. There are going to be AI-specific roles, but it's going to impact all tasks at some level. And so you got to see your job on a spectrum of whether the tasks in your job are, the majority of them are likely to be ones that AI is going to be able to do. And then you think about how you upskill or how you start thinking about job transitions, or do you feel really good about the core skill set 
being a competitive, durable one? And then how do you keep perfecting that? And that's how we should all think about it, I think, right now. I'm so glad that you brought up, like, by the way, AI has been around for quite some time, but it does feel like this, yeah. this sudden kind of change. And, and of course, though, it isn't the first time in the last 20 years that a new technology has created new roles or eliminated roles, added a lot to our roles, changed our jobs. You know, one of the easiest examples I can think of is like social media and social media managers as a concept or having social media as part of your job, which, you know, obviously didn't exist 20 so years ago. You know, nearly every business obviously has this now. You know, what can we learn from those kind of other times when a new technology created new positions, yeah. added to our positions? And how does this kind of pace of change compare to those other times in recent history where those things happened? Yeah. Just like you said there, I think people that have been around AI for some time know that it's not new. But I think even those who have been most steeped in everything AI for years or decades realize that November and GPT opened up a whole new level of thinking that we need to do around AI in terms of the capabilities that we're developing. And so if you look at a lot of the discussions around where was technology going, where was AI going from like the second half of the last decade, you see a lot of the early versions of questions that we now need to urgently kind of dust off and ask anew, you know, now that we're in this moment. I just reread Sapiens, came out, I think, in 2014, and it raises a lot of big, important questions about technology, which at the time probably felt a little futuristic to folks. But rereading it today, it feels urgently applicable to the big questions that we're asking. So I think one of the good things I'm realizing is that there has been a lot of big thinking that's happened before that we can immediately bring to bear. We're not starting at zero and trying to figure out how to manage it, even when we're just talking about AI. But when you broaden it out to technological change writ large, then you go back to the early days of the internet, when it's not long ago, and, and those of us old enough to, to remember, remember when people were asking questions like, what is the internet? I've been using this Today Show clip that anyone can look up right now, just Google like, what is the internet Today Show? And it's Bryant Gumbel and Katie Kirk literally saying to a producer, what is the internet? Can you explain it? Because they were trying to figure out what the at symbol was in an email alias that they were giving to viewers. We've come pretty far from then. And at the time, a lot of the same sort of fears existed about automation and that technology was going to rid the need for humans to work. But MIT looked across all jobs. Uh, there's an economist there who said 60% of today's workers are employed in occupations that did not exist in 1940. So that shows you there's so much that AI is going to do that we don't yet know, but it is highly unlikely, I think, that it is going to limit the number of jobs. It's going to change jobs. I think more than past technologies, and we can get into this too later, is it's going to open up more need for and opportunities around entrepreneurship. And if we can get more diverse entrepreneurs in the mix, if we can get people with more diverse backgrounds in the mix in terms of entrepreneurship, the people that have gotten the financing to build the biggest world-changing companies to date have all looked pretty similar. So if we can start opening that up, I think we're going to look at some feats of human achievement that will be really inspiring because we're going to, I think, if we do it right, give anyone from anywhere the chance to be and do anything. And I just believe so deeply in human potential that exists in everyone that to be alive to see that true for more people in more places than before, you got to assume if you bet on humans, and I'm long on humans, that that's going to lead to some really cool stuff. You have such an optimistic outlook on AI. So much of uh, uh, the conversations around AI and, and work are pretty panicky, are pretty doom and gloom of like, it's going to, the robots are going to take our jobs. And I appreciate your very optimistic uh, outlook about AI. But I also liked what you were saying. And it's true when you think about when the internet didn't exist and what we thought of as our jobs and 
I am old enough that I majored in print <laughs> journalism and thought I was going to be a yeah. print <laughs> journalist and have spent the majority <laughs> yeah. of my career as a, you know, quote, internet journalist. Yeah. All of these parts of our lives and our jobs didn't exist before and we couldn't have imagined them before. We've talked about this a little bit so far and we've talked about the new jobs that are going to be created and looking for jobs. There's so much there, especially as a former journalist. You know, I started my career as a war correspondent with CNN. Just the print part that print was listed out is so fascinating to think about because again, it's like the job titles that end up being fixed around established structures that are all changing. But I've thought a lot about sort of my past as a journalist and it really underscores to me the power of skills first, which is this, like a lot of us who went into journalists, especially right out of the gate, it was a calling. And I'm sure for you, it still is. There was something deeply meaningful about being a journalist. We all came of age at a time when it was the journalist who was shining light on topics that otherwise were going ignored. The journalist who were giving voice to people that were otherwise ignored. The journalist who was looking ahead and trying to see what was coming so people could get smart quick early. And that's changed a lot. Uh, there's been a lot more analysis in journalism. You know, my background's in cable news. We've seen how that's played out. But as I talk to journalists, especially those who, who might not be in journalism anymore or looking at where they want to go with their career, it's really about storytelling. So when I look at my career, it used to be really hard for me to explain who I was. I had a bunch of cool job titles, war correspondent, presidential speech trader, growth guy at startups, Facebook, Newsome, now at LinkedIn. And people are like, oh, that's really cool. But like, I have no idea what to do with you. Like, I can't even begin to understand where I'm going to place you. So like, good luck. And so I got really good-ish at, as best I could, explaining it all against what the needs of the organization were. But once I got to LinkedIn and I started doing that accounting of what skills did I use in each job, I was like, oh, there's one through line to all this, which is explanatory storytelling. In every job I've had, that's what I've like brought to bear at the core. And then I put it in different environments and I've gotten better at it in different ways and add coalition building to it, attach it to this issue of economic opportunity. But just like you and we as like journalists, me a former, you is still current. I think journalism is this fascinating way to understand how skills first can help everyone have more adaptability, agility, and really agency in their career, sticking to the thing that they love most about what they do. Yeah, and that's exactly it is you kind of have done the work for the employer now by saying, and this goes back to what you were saying yeah. about the skills first, is like, well, wait, what does a broadcast journalism, what does that job have to do with speech writing, have to do with this job yeah. that you're applying for? But if you yeah. literally hand them, here is the skill yeah. that I have that's transferable to all of that. Yeah. So you have brought so much knowledge to this. Anything else that I miss, maybe for managers who want to help encourage their teams, their employees to stay competitive, to think about ways to upskill? Well, on entrepreneurship, and I think this is important for managers too, it's been true for some time that our jobs are changing on us, even if we're not changing jobs. So my squiggly line career is going to become more and more the norm for everyone, even if you're literally not changing your job because your job's changing. 25% of the skills in a job changed from 2015 to now. It'll be 65% by 2030. And so Everyone should bring a sort of skills-first entrepreneurial mindset to their day-to-day. -day. The thing I want is not just to sort of realize that fear doesn't do anyone any good because it makes more certain bad outcomes for yourself and for society. This is, again, change that we can and must shape, not just should shape, must shape. And that's true for us as individuals too. So don't concede that this is something happening to you or around you. Start to engage in it directly and start 
using a skills first mindset because it'll make it so easy and actually quite fun very quickly to just start thinking about what's happening and where you want to go. But then the other skill set, I think, is entrepreneurship. You know, as I talk about the study of philosophy as its skill, I think entrepreneurial mindset is one of those that'll just give you a way to be adaptive at a time when that's really necessary. I do think at a company level, but definitely at a societal level, entrepreneurship is going to become a really big focus. If you think about as a country or economy, how do people access economic opportunity? It's through really two ways, employment or entrepreneurship. And we've spent a lot of time talking about employment. Within that, I think the workforce development shifts that need to happen include how we prepare workers for the labor market. How do we get community colleges and even four-year degrees alongside other pathways into the labor market to be more tethered to the changing dynamics of employability? But on entrepreneurship, you know, I spent a lot of time, not just in the US, but around the world, thinking about AI and work and commerce, including a lot of time in India right now. India is growing really fast, but to keep growing, it can't count on employment as the only way to grow. It has the world's largest Gen Z population. It needs more businesses that are creating more jobs too. And so there's a growing focus on entrepreneurship in India, especially female entrepreneurship as one way to close the gender gap in the labor market. And there's going to be so many new easier ways for people to build businesses. You don't have to go find a way to build a website. Like AI is going to be a tool that helps people be able to do that, at least at the beginning, at the basic level. Think about the biggest barriers to commerce. If I'm someone who knows how to do textile work really well, or you know, coaching really well in this specific way, but I don't know how to build that business beyond cultures I don't know, languages I don't know, you know, even functional or sector-specific understandings, I don't know. AI is going to help folks be able to do that. And then you just look at entrepreneurship within that Gen Z generation, and you could see as a team manager, skills first, and then entrepreneurship, both for adaptability, but I think that's where people are going to get most energized as we see AI play out, the ways that we're all going to get to be part of building new ways to do what we've done before. Because it's rare, if ever, you get to be alive at a time when it's not about incremental change. It's not just like, how do we do this a little bit better or do this one thing better? We're in a moment, at least for the next, I'd say, five to 10 years, where it's really a systems level conversation. You do have an optimistic view, but I do feel like it's very clear eyed on kind of how we're going to get there. And I appreciate that viewpoint, too, of AI has such potential to, as you say, break down a lot of those barriers that existed before. I always like to remind people the Internet's a good example, but Everything that exists around us, when we talk about the systems and structures around employment and entrepreneurship and economic opportunity, everything around all of that was built by other people, people just like us, in different moments, at different times. These are not fixed things that just emerged. These are things that were built and refined over time, sometimes with not the best intent, sometimes with the best intent, but whatever was built was built by people like us. We had at that event in New York, this great point made by Byron August, who's the head of Opportunity at Work, which is this organization trying to create more pathways into the labor market for people without a degree, which, by the way, is the vast majority of black and brown workers, as well as rural and veteran workers in the U.S. So as purple an issue as you could probably find these days. And he reminded the audience that high school in America was once a big new thing. From 1910 to 1940, we went from 19% to over 70% of 18-year-olds enrolled in high school because it was motivated by this urgent skills gap problem. So just going to high school until you graduate, which we take as a norm, was not a norm. 
but it became a norm because it was built by people who were solving a skills gap problem. I love that you said that because I think that and say that all the time whenever we're like, oh, this is the way things are. This is the structure that we live in. This is how things are supposed to be done. I'm like, you realize it's all just made up. Yeah. Like it was just made up by a different person. And we're people now, so we can make up something else. Like these are not sent from high rules for how things have to be. We can make new rules. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so fascinating. And I know that we've kind of just scratched the surface of how AI is going to impact the future of work. But I think this is a, is a great start. Well, thanks for having me. And we will be talking about this for the rest yes, of our yes. careers. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And I'm holding myself accountable to shifting the narrative as much as I can so that we do find these pockets of inspiration and hope that can build on each other. And maybe that's one of the things we can keep tracking together is where we're seeing, which we are at LinkedIn, companies and members and even economies that are building with the right intent and with the right innovation to better. Because I think that's also helpful for people to realize that we're not all alone on an island. We can look to others to see what they're doing, learn from each other, so everyone can just share knowledge as we're gaining it. Oh, yeah. And then in 20 years, we can listen to this and sound as <laughs> sound as ridiculous yes. as uh, Brian Gummel and uh, Katie Couric who'd say the internet. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk yeah, about the AI 20 years from now and laugh yes, at ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Last month at the Fast Company Innovation Festival, we invited attendees to record their answers to some of the most pressing business questions. Over the next few months, we'll bring you some of their answers both on this show and over at our other podcast, Most Innovative Companies. Here are some of their answers to how AI is affecting their businesses and what we might see a year from now. My name is Kim Ritberg. I'm an award-winning digital marketer and founder of Henry Street Media. So in my industry, I help business owners and companies to grow their brand to leverage video and podcasts, to become thought leaders, to turn their businesses into brands. And one of the biggest struggles I see is that of consistency, right? I am really excited that as AI keeps improving and gets better, that it's going to help business owners with that consistency part of it. Because the key to consistency without burnout is efficiency. Having good systems and good apps and good products that help you do more in less time. I'm more excited to merge that AI piece with humanity. If you look on social media and you see those AI computer-generated videos or carousels or reels, you can always tell when it's fully AI and it's really lacking that human touch, you absolutely still need to bring your personality. You need to bring your humor. You need to bring your pathos. You need that human connection in your content. Hello, my name is Trina Limpert. I am the CRO at Vibonics. I think there's a lot of perception of the fear of the loss of humanity, but with the work that we're doing at Vibonics, we're actually putting the humanity back into AI. And how do we leverage that? So similar to when you had a mood ring, for those of you that had a mood ring and and would feel that, let me do a check-in. How do I feel? What's my emotional state right now? We now have an app that uses your voice frequencies to determine your current emotional state. So within the Vibonics app, you actually speak into the app and you count to 15 and each emotion has a specific frequency. So we can track and monitor exactly what your emotional intelligence factor is or your EQ. So you get a score from that. Within 15 seconds, you can say, right now I'm dealing high in fear and low in motivation. I'm dealing with a lot of happiness or loneliness Uh, confusion. What am I dealing with right now? And I think sometimes we feel the emotions, but we don't quite know what it is or how we got there. So with that, 
We've been able to use this at universities with students to be able to manage and work with mental wellness. We've been able to work with psychologists that are then working with their patients. And so instead of doing that long laundry list of survey questions, you speak for 15 seconds and you say, here's how I'm doing, and you hand it to your counselor. We also use it with performance coaches for if you're coaching a tennis team and you're doing some one-on-one coaches, how am I doing emotionally? Because it really does change your performance outcomes. And if you think about this from an organizational perspective, if your organization is in a very toxic place, we talk culture, we talk emotional intelligence, but can we really understand what that is? And up until now, it's been very soft. You can't really tell I we're talking about feelings or I'm uncomfortable talking about our feelings, but that is the number one increase in productivity you're going to get in your organization is being able to address the emotional intelligence of your organization. Hi there. My name is Dr. Natanya Wachtel, and I run the New Solutions Network, which is a boutique consulting firm of subject matter experts in healthcare. And so AI and the intersection of it with healthcare is I think, a a double-edged sword, mostly on the positive side, the incredible ability to synthesize and analyze huge swaths of data across population types, ethnicity types, geography, socioeconomic status, to be able to understand and predict potentially and prevent horrible outcomes, right? Diseases, mortality, and that. However, the other end of the sword perhaps is around the quality control and the lack of regulations that we have currently to protect some of our data that may be used against us, as well as treatment decisions that may or may not be with the human factor in mind. For example, an end-of-life decision. You know, many people are not necessarily comfortable with an AI determining that they should be terminal or have their life support system removed. So there may need to be certain systems that have to be created where humans are always in the loop. And I think that's one area where there's sort of a danger zone, but it can be managed. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu with editing by Nicholas Torres. 